Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the University of Melbourne. My name is Vivian Marils. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Engineering here at the University of Melbourne. And it's a real pleasure for me to be able to introduce tonight's lecture on the energy futures. And we're going to hear about Alan Finkel's review of the security of the national electricity market. The interest has been overwhelming and hence a full room, and I'm certainly looking forward to a very engaging evening. Before we commence evening's proceedings, I would like first to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the event is taking place, the land of the Wurundjeri people, and pay our respect to their elders, families, past and present. Just for information, the event tonight is being recorded. And also, I would like to make sure that all of your mobile devices are set to silent. Tonight's seminar is the second one in the series of the Energy Futures. And I would like to thank, in particular, the Melbourne Energy Institute, who is also represented here by the Dean of Faculty of Science, Professor Karen Day, who is the custodial dean for the Energy Institute and the Gretton Institute, and they proudly co-sponsor the event tonight. We're also pleased that the Melbourne Energy Institute here at university was commissioned as part of the Alan Finkel review process to assess the security of the power systems that might arise under the very different scenarios of emission reduction. This work was led by the Melbourne School of Engineering, Professor of Power Engineering, Professor Pierluigi Mansarella. I would now, now like to introduce or welcome Sabra Lane, ABC Radio National AM host, who will be RMC for tonight. Thank you all for visiting the university, and I hope that you all enjoy tonight's event. Sabra. Thank you, and welcome, everyone. There's nothing like a good, chilly Melbourne night to reinforce why we're here. Thank you for all coming here tonight to be part of this really important discussion and thank you to Dr. Alan Finkel, to Audrey Zebelman and to Tony Wood for being part of this tonight and for being part of the panel discussion. Each of our speakers will firstly give an outline of their area of expertise before we have a free-flowing discussion and then we'll take some questions from the floor. Now, if only Dr Finkel and his panel could have figured out a way to harness the emissions and hot air coming from Canberra over the past 10 years, we could power this country for another 100 years alone. Over the past 10 years, we've had... You know, we have come to a policy paralysis, basically, on this particular issue. This issue on climate change and energy has seen off two prime ministers and an opposition leader. The unprecedented power blackout that we saw in South Australia last year uh, prompted COAG, the Council of Australian Governments, to commission Dr Finkel to review energy policy, to devise a blueprint for the future. The closure of Victoria's Hazelwood plant merely uh, made the issue really more pressing for the nation. Most Australians are rightly confused, thinking, how on earth has it come to this? A nation that should be an energy powerhouse in the world is now stuck in this policy paralysis, bitterly divided on what to do. I know, because I prod our political leaders on almost a weekly basis on this issue, and recently I've spoken with Malcolm Turnbull, Josh Frydenberg, Matt Canavan, 
Mark Butler, and a host of experts, including Tony Wood, about what to do. Now, Dr Finkel has come up with his blueprint. It was revealed weeks ago before COAG, and just yesterday at the National Press Club, he had an opportunity to outline that plan, and tonight he's going to give us a shortened view of that. So good, good evening, and welcome to Dr Alan Finkel, Australia's Chief Scientist. Do I have to find the presentation? <laughs> While that's been done, let me uh, say, Sabri, you mentioned about harnessing the hot air. And as you were saying that, I was thinking we were the wrong group to do that. The CSIRO does a lot of work on enteric fermentation, methane emissions from cows, and maybe that's where they should be looking for their next project. Um, I'm just going to try and give you a short overview of what was in the report. I'm assuming actually that you've all read it. It's only 212 pages. Um, that's what weekends are for. Um, so I'll pick out some of the key highlights of uh, what we call the blueprint for the future. Uh, the panel, it's worth noting, Karen Moses, Chloe Munro, I think Chloe might be here, Mary O'Kane and Cherry Effany uh, were the group that helped me, but we were supported by a fantastic task force put together by the Department of Energy and um, Environment. Okay, so let me take you through some of the essentials. We have had what I tend to think of up until recently, 100 years of sameness in the electricity industry. Basically, what you saw was centralised electricity generation, and it didn't matter what their primary fuel source was. It could have been coal, hydro, gas, uh, or diesel. They were synchronous generators. They were really well-behaved on the electricity market, they understood frequency and voltage strength, they did good things. Um, the electricity always flowed in one direction, along through the transmission network, through the distribution network, managed through the retailers on the way to the end use of the consumer. Whether that's an industrial, commercial or residential consumer, that's the process that we've had. And it served us very well. The national electricity market, which I'll now start referring to as the NEM, NEM, National Electricity Market, uh, was formed in 1998. It brought governance and uh, economic benefits to what had been isolated state-based approaches, and um, we've had stability and low prices until the last few years. So it did serve us well, but then along came disruption. And we're talking about serious disruption. And the thing about disruptive technology is disruptive expectations, you cannot unwind them. So let me just quickly take you through some of those disruptions. There's the sameness, the traditional uh, electricity generation we've had, but now it's evolving. It's evolving because we've now added in large-scale solar and wind generators. And as you, I think most of you in this audience will be aware, the prices of large-scale solar and wind have come down dramatically. And it doesn't matter what your background is, know about or care about climate uh, change. The fact is the technology is disruptive, it's there, and not only is it a form of generation, but it changes the nature of the way the various generators interplay with each other and actually makes it more difficult for traditional generators, but opens up many opportunities. In addition to that, we've had the introduction of uh, what is approaching 2 million rooftop solar PV installations, 
Uh, so we've now got distributed microgenerators all over the place, and they also change the nature of the daily load curve and the economic opportunities for the players in the system. You can't unwind that. And the costs are such that even without subsidies, everybody expects there will be more and more solar rooftops. Um, and then storage. The, the um, innovation in battery technology is staggering, and it's driven by all of you and your three billion friends around the world who have smartphones and laptop computers and want those to operate for the longest possible time between charges. Courtesy of that, uh, manufacturers have been able to repurpose the fantastic revolution in battery technology that has supported mobile computing and mobile phones into grid-scale batteries. And so now we're getting grid-scale batteries around the world connecting to the transmission network and providing a number of services, including large-scale storage. It's not yet huge. I'm not suggesting that. But there are significant installations around the world and there are significant installations underway in Australia. And the cost is not unreasonable. The price is coming down on batteries about a factor of it's coming down to a half every five years for the last 10 to 15 years, which means every decade they come down by 75% to a quarter of their previous price. How long that can be kept up? Who knows? Innovation is a wonderful thing. Um, and you're seeing batteries being installed in end-user premises, which means that the end-user with solar panels and a battery is in a much more powerful position to manage their electricity use. And, of course, there's the potential for large-scale pumped hydro in Australia. We've had the ANU map out hundreds of sites. We've had the federal government um, commence a process of investigating and making a commitment to a large-scale pumped hydro with the Snowy Mountains. The nice thing about pumped hydro is that you get zero emissions storage, but you also get all the essential security services that conventional generation brings with it. The other um, really transformational change is that the electricity system is starting to become multi-way or, or bi-directional. So consumers are pumping electricity back into the system. And that, again, changes the nature of operation and it can't be reversed. Another big change is that automation is coming to premises to help consumers manage their consumption. There's been a dream for a long time that if you give pro appropriate signals to residential consumers about the price of electricity during the course of the day, they'll manage their electricity consumption. doesn't work. Nowhere in the world has that worked. Even if you start off doing a trial with engaged consumers, in just three days they lose interest. People don't want to manage their electricity. But with smart appliances and smart software, they only have to once every X years set it up and then it all runs for them, and everybody can benefit, and I'll come back to that. And then the last thing is the opportunity for peer-to-peer -peer trading. Now, you can't do peer-to-peer -peer trading of your solar power by throwing a cable over the back fence to your neighbour. You have to use the resources of the distribution network. And so that puts another pressure on the way the distribution network works, and it doesn't work without a lot of intelligent software to make it possible as well. So you can see that there are many, many disruptions in te or technological disruptions, but there are other pressures on the traditional 
network. One is the international obligations that we have. We've made commitments under the COP21 Accords in Paris, Paris Agreement to reduce our emissions and the electricity sector has to play a significant role in doing that. I won't go through the story. You all know carbon dioxide is going up like that. This is the ice core record. This is the more recent 50 years of atmospheric records. Through the Paris 2015 COP21 Agreement, uh, we have committed to X percent by 2030, etc. So that's a significant non-technological pressure that the traditional electricity system is under. Then there are price increases. The price of electricity, it's hard to actually give it a you know, specific number, but you could say it's, it's doubled in about 10 years, doubled in real terms, for many, many reasons. Let me just quickly go through a few. Well, I won't go through them now, I'll go through them later. Um, the other thing, of course, is more and more external threats, cyber security, extreme weather events. All of these things have been happening. The system hasn't been adjusting very rapidly and it's been struggling to keep up. There have been a number of reviews on various aspects of the national electricity market done by different groups, but not a large review. The tension, the frustration has been building up in government circles, in the circles of regulators and participants, and that tension has actually was getting near to breaking point um, by the time there was that extreme weather event in South Australia in September the 28th last year. Extreme weather event, as I showed in the previous slide, took down pylons, did lots of bad things. You might have noticed there was a huge amount of finger pointing between federal and state governments, accusing renewables and weather and climate change, etc., etc. As a result of that, COAG Energy Council, uh, with support from the COAG leaders, the premiers and prime minister, decided that there needed to be a large-scale review into the performance of the electricity system, and they decided to set up what was formally called the Independent Review into the Future Security of the National Electricity Market, colloquially called the Finkel Review, um, because they asked me to chair it, and they gave me wonderful uh, panel members and task force, and we worked hard. We've done a very deep dive, and we'll talk about that later on. But really, we subtitled it the blueprint for the future because in the terms of reference, they asked us to develop a blueprint for the legislation and regulations that would ensure the most appropriate and best operation of the network into the future, focusing on security, reliability and affordability, but cognizant of the international emissions obligations. So how do we do it? We decided to be very, very consultative. We had over 120 meetings with stakeholders, 450 people came to public consultations. We got a massive number of submissions. I'm sure that at least a dozen or two of the submissions came from people in this room. And the submissions were fantastic. Everybody takes the electricity system seriously. I think on the first day after the announcement of our review, every person who's ever worked in the electricity industry contacted me to offer their help. And I would also say that if I had to reach out, and I did, during the course of the review to people to request their help, it was always willingly given. It was really quite remarkable. Uh, we met with operators and regulators across Europe and the United States. The panel went and we travelled, and not only did we meet with the operators and regulators, but also with the Department of Energy in America and some of the big uh, engineering firms that are 
working across the spectrum from generation to demand-side management. Um, we commissioned the International Energy Agency that's headquartered in Paris to do a custom report for us, looking at world's best practice in this area. And very importantly, we commissioned two major ongoing projects, one through Jacobs Group to do economic policy scenario analysis so that we could look at different ways of integrating uh, emissions reductions policies and energy policies, and I'll tell you a little bit more about why we wanted to do that later on, and that was done uh, you know, to a great deal of detail. But that's not enough. You can't just look at the economics of this. You have to make sure that whatever you're recommending provides security and reliability into the future. And for that, as you heard earlier, we commissioned the Melbourne Energy Institute, which is part of the Faculty of Engineering here at the University of Melbourne, and it was fantastic working with them, uh, serious power systems engineers, and they analysed the results of our policy scenarios to give us comfort that we would get, uh, that we would continue to have a secure and reliable system. Now, one of the topics that I'm sure 385 of the 390 submissions mentioned was the topic of business as usual not being acceptable. Everybody realises that we can't just keep doing what we've done in the past. It's not possible in a world of disruptive technological change and a whole lot of other exogenous pressures on the system. So what mental attitude did we come in? Did we come in with an ideological agenda? No way. Um, I certainly, because I'm not um, either left-leaning or right-leaning, um, I don't really have a political inclination. I have a PhD in electrical engineering, but a different kind of electrical engineering. I design scientific instruments, microvolts, nanoamps, very different to the world of power engineering. Uh, so I came in very open-minded, as did the panel. The actual approach we took was an engineering approach. We're building a bridge. Do you seek perfection? No, engineers, I'm sorry to say this, do not seek perfection, because you can't afford perfection. Do you compromise? Engineers definitely don't compromise because bridges fall down if you compromise the design. What engineering does is it optimises. And I can say with some degree of pride that I feel that we have delivered not a consensus, not a compromise, but an optimised package in the review that we've put forward to the government. Our recommendations focus on outcomes, and this is important. We're not focused on inputs and outputs, we're talking about, we're focused on the big issues here, what we care about. And those outcomes are, thought, are, are supported by three key pillars. Now, I don't have time to go through every detail of all of these, so I'm going to just touch on a few examples from within these outcomes and pillars. The outcomes are security, reliability, lowest cost, call it affordability if you like, and lower emissions. That's what we care about. They're the outcomes that we have to achieve. And the pillars that support them are what we call an orderly transition, which is the way we're integrating emissions reduction and energy policies together. More system planning. In a very complex world in transition, you can't just rely on market forces. Market forces are important, but markets need to be managed to some extent. And stronger governance. We feel that the system as it is at the moment has fallen behind a little bit, but can easily be... Um, not just restored, but put onto a, a front foot approach. So a couple of, just a few examples. On reliability, one of the things that we've recommended um, is a generator reliability obligation. 
And basically, what we're saying is that new wind farms, the new solar farms, actually all new generators, need to provide some of the essential requirements of a well-functioning system. And one of them is that they can provide electricity when it's needed, not just when they feel like it. So what that means is that a wind farm in future, or a solar farm, would have to have some kind of storage facility. Now, the picture there shows an actual wind farm with battery storage, but we haven't recommended battery storage. We just says it has to be able, we've just said it has to be able to dispatch when needed. Basically, AEMO, and uh, you'll hear from Audrey later on, AEMO typically knows the day before that they're going to get into a difficult situation and can put out a notice to the um, generator community to say, be aware, we're going to have major load and need of your capability uh, tomorrow. So 362 days of the year, they can use those batteries however they like, but if they're put on notice, they have to keep stored energy in reserve so that at 5 o'clock on a really extremely hot summer's day, when there happens to be almost no wind and the sun has gone down, there's almost no solar, but everybody is still using their air conditioners flat out, you've got something to deliver. The, the quantity of storage will depend on the state that it's in, New South Wales has different requirements to South Australia, and it will be worked out not by us, but by AEMO and AMC to balance future needs and economic burden or financial burden on the new generators. Um, another outcome is to achieve lowest long-term cost. We can't promise low cost. We'll never go back, I don't think, to the very low costs of the past, low prices of the past, but we can do better than would happen if we're not thoughtful. Um, and one of the ways to do that is to reward consumers for the role that they play in the system. What I've got here is a picture from South Australia on the very hot day on the 8th of February this year. The red line, nor the other lines at the moment, the red line is the actual demand in the system. You can see it's very peaky. It goes to a very high peak. If you can encourage consumers to, using automation software, to shape their demand, their load, so that they're taking a bit more during the middle of the day and a bit more at the end, but not that much in the peak. That's fantastic because you reduce the amount of current that has to be supplied through the system. They deserve to be rewarded. Now, not everybody can get that because not everybody has solar and batteries and not everybody's going to have the intelligent appliances that enables them to manage their load. But it's important to make sure that everybody else benefits and they will benefit because if you make this into a substantial contribution, need to build new transmission and distribution lines in the future is avoided, and those represent about 50%, the cost for distribution and transmission represents about 50% of the current bill. So it's important to avoid them in future. And also, if you've lopped off the top, you just don't need as much generation in the system, and that's another advantage. Another cost thing, um, there are many pressures on costs, gas and everything else, and they're huge. But the long-term pressure is just policy uncertainty. Investors don't know what's happening in this country in respect of uh, policies around emissions reduction. And so we've seen that that's um, a big problem. We need to do something about that. Investors understand that they can't have certainty. What they want is a predictable environment. They won't take a chance if there's not going to be constant policy flip-flops. It's like setting off to discover America. You want to have some reason to believe there is land over the horizon before you set off. Um, we 
need to lower emissions. So we have modelled a particular emissions trajectory, but we haven't told the government this is what you must use. In the absence of any other advice from government, we just took the Paris requirements and applied it to the electricity sector, but ultimately the government, the whole of the what they want to do. So we have taken, um, this is, blue line's the historical record till now. This is what is expected over the next few years till 2020. Then we have modelled an emissions reduction trajectory to 28% down by 2030 and then towards zero by 2070. 28% down is one of our commitments to Paris. Um, reaching zero in the second half of the century is another commitment. Um, now let me get off the outcomes and talk about the underpinning under, um, pillars. An orderly transition. That's what we need. We don't want a race to a target of 2030 and then you say, what's next? There needs to be a national agreement by all the state and territory governments and the Australian government to a trajectory. There needs to be an agreement on a mechanism to achieve it. And we've gone for a clean energy target. There's an emissions intensity scheme. We can talk about that later. And the third thing is a three-year notice of closure. So we've said that large generators like Hazelwood, which only get five months' notice of its closure, need to think about their business and um, give three years' notice. It's got two big benefits. One is communities. State governments, local governments, federal governments can assist if they know there's a closure. And also investors will know there's an opportunity opening up in the market if they get a three-year notice. Um, the third one is stronger governance. This is the... I've taken a lot out of it. This is the basic structure of governance at the moment. We have COAG Energy Council and the three market bodies, AEMO, the operator, AEMC, the rulemaker, and AER, the regulator. And we've recommended a new energy security board, which will be responsible for delivering on the blueprint and providing an annual health check back up to COAG. And it will live in between, if you like, the uh, three market bodies and COAG. But it doesn't prevent, it doesn't in any way um, inhibit their direct connection to COAG, but it provides this integrating opportunity for all of them. Okay, I mentioned in the beginning inputs and outputs and outcomes. So most people tend to look at the NIM and they think about, oh, we've got the right generation mix, too much coal, not enough coal, do we have the right governance, are there enough competitors, you know, retailers in the market to make it an efficient competitive retail market? In a sense, you could say, who cares? What's really important are we achieving the increased security, the reliability, the emissions, and the lower costs that we need? So you'll see in our review, we're very, very focused on that. All right, modelling results. Um, in terms of the contribution of renewables um, under the clean energy target, meaning 28% emissions reduction, which is the actual outcome, one of the outputs is 42% renewable energy. Um, and on prices, what we've seen is the top line there is business as usual. The um, gold line is the emissions intensity scheme. The blue line is a clean energy target. What you see is both of those mechanisms do the lower prices in the long run. I can't tell you what the price will be. Modelling doesn't tell you actually what the price will be in 2030 or 2040, but it can tell you the relativities between the different policy scenarios. Lastly, just to finish, let me tell you a few things about where we're at. So we presented the, or I presented on behalf of the panel, the report to COAG, what's today, Thursday, just under two weeks ago, 13 days ago, on the 9th of June in Hobart. It was well received by the Premiers and the Prime Minister, which was very gratifying. And then on Tuesday of this week, the Prime Minister and Minister Frydenberg, after 
truly having worked hard in those intervening 11 days, uh, working with all of their um, colleagues in the party room and backbench and crossbench, but mainly the party room, uh, announced that they have accepted 49 of 50 recommendations in our review. So I've got the glass there. The glass is almost full. <laughs> the only thing they haven't looked, uh, agreed to is the emissions reduction trajectory and clean energy target, which is part of one recommendation. That's the orderly transition. It's a big one, I agree. The other 49 are important. And if that's all we ever got, that would be a help. But really, we need to do something about the policies. But they haven't rejected it. So they've accepted 49, and they're considering, and they're actively considering. They're not like lining it up for rejection. They're lining it up, I think, for acceptance. But it's difficult. There are a lot of hot air, as Sabra was saying, going on about this. But given the amount of time, it's quite an extraordinary position to be in, and it's very gratifying to see the progress. Now, the Commonwealth can't make the final decision. What they've really said is that they are endorsing 49 out of 50 and asking the Minister for Energy to take that Commonwealth endorsement to the COEG Energy Council, which is about two weeks from now um, in the middle of July. The discussion uh, mid-July. Um, that's it. Thank you. A little quote up there is from something I referred to in the National Press Club on Wednesday. Everything must change so that everything can stay the same. You can't just hope for things to work out. You've got to be pretty active. Thank you. So our next speaker is Audrey Zebelman. Audrey is the Chief Executive of the Australian Energy Market Operator and she started as Chief Executive in March this year, so she well and truly hit the ground running. And Audrey has extensive experience in the public-private not-for-profit sectors, energy sectors. Before moving to Melbourne, Audrey was the Chairwoman of the New York State Public Service Commission, responsible for overseeing the regulation and safety of New York's electricity, gas, telephone, cable, water and steam utilities, no small feat. So please welcome Audrey Zieberman. I don't have slides, but I love that one that, that Alan did. So um, as um, I did, I arrived from New York, and you know the issue in New York actually, what started us looking at these very same issues was Hurricane Sandy. And if you can imagine what it's like, and you might not be able to, living in the 42nd story of a, an apartment building and, ha and being 80 years old and having to walk downstairs in order to get water, and electricity, and your parent and your kids can't get a hold of you, you can imagine why the governor of New York said, we're not going to do this anymore. And so we began a process of saying, we also, maybe, whether you, know, you believe in climate change or not, we were facing major climatic events, which were affecting our gas sector and our electric sector. And in a mega city like New York, or a state like New York, where you're highly dependent on energy, we had to relook at it. And we began to look at it in very much the same way that uh, Dr. Finkel and his panel has sort of identified as what are the key issues going forward. So the first step is this. <clears throat> you know, in the 20th, 20th century, we did. We designed a system about, around large central station power plants and uh, economies of scale and monopoly systems with the idea that customers, the use of energy, 
was not going to be price responsive and was largely inelastic. Now, in the 21st century, we're really starting to think about the system should be very, very different. And if you wanted to redefine the system, you have to do really what I think is you start from the other direction and you design it from the consumer out. And you start to think about what do consumers want as opposed to what do generators need. And what do consumers want? They want low-cost energy. They want it to be affordable because it's an input to their economy. It's not an output. They want it to be reliable. We need to be able to turn the lights on. Increasingly, as we see in Australia, and this is across the world, consumers are revealing their preference around the environment. They want to have a great deal more choice about the selection of energy that they're going to be using. And so you have to think about that in the context of how energy is changing. And really, for, for uh, New York and I think for Australia, how do you retain a, a reliable system in light of these changes? And so, you know, one of the things that people talk about is they say, well, well, we have to, you know, we have a, we, we have a problem with intermittency. So one of the contexts that we can think about in energy is if you redesign it from the consumer out, you could start thinking about the use of distributed resources as not a problem that we have to solve, but a solution. And that demand and the ability to manage demand becomes a solution for the rest of, for a good portion of the network. So one of the things that I think is very important when we think about the Finkel Review and what AUMO is thinking about in a very different way is we start to evolve the markets from a, from a totally different perspective. And one perspective is the fact that one of the things we want to do is drive efficiency and modernize the networks. So if you think about that issue, and it, it, it turns to the point of this, is that the system itself, the electric system that was designed in the 20th century, was designed around the fact that you needed a great deal of redundancy and that the system itself had to be able to meet demand during all hours, even during peak hours. And since electricity can't be, uh, has to be manufactured instantaneously, it's the only product that's truly real-time, you consume it at the same time you produce it, we build in a lot of inefficiencies in the network. And so there are parts of Australia today where we say that basically we call it about a 50% capacity factor, meaning that 50% of the system is sort of sitting there idle just a few hours a year, and that's what Alan was saying, sort of just drives prices up. So what if we then combine some of these issues then that we're worried about and think about how do we produce this differently? So one is, is that we are concerned about cost. The other piece that's changing in the electric networks for the 21st century that was different in 20th century, 20th century, especially after World War II, across the world, demand kept going up. It was going to be infinite growth. What's happened now in the last 20, 15 years that we've seen throughout the world and more increasingly, even in areas like <clears throat> New York City, where if you go through, it's, you know, everyone's building bigger buildings, demand's going down because the buildings we're building are more efficient than the buildings we built. And that means that we're not seeing this growth. So all these things are combining to look at certain solutions that really then start solving the problems that we're, we, we're talking about here. One is the fact that we want electricity to be affordable, Secondly, we want to provide more choice. Third, we're seeing the cost of solar and, and wind come down, and so we need to have the system be smarter and faster. So all this is around, I think, some of the things that the, that the report identifies as solutions that need to be thought of. One is using demand better. So think about it this way. 
Rather than having to build a generator and transmission and distribution plant just for those few hours of year, if we have distributed energy resources and we send the right price signals, it's doing a number of different things, but one of it is it's driving the efficiency of the networks. And one of the things that's true in most 21st century companies, it's not about capital spend, but capital productivity. And what we want to do is use the capital that we're spending in energy in the most productive way possible, which means creating a two-way system. The other point is once you have a two-way system, now you have demand that can respond to price signals, but you can also have demand respond to the availability of other resources on the system. So let me give you an, another example to the one that we were just looking at. Wind blows at night. More coal is best at night. It doesn't blow very, very well on a hot afternoon. If you know it's hot and stuffy, right? Wind's not blowing. So what if we can use demand better and move it to the evening hours? And, we're, and so we're not cutting and curtailing load when people think about we're telling people to turn the lights out. Rather, we're sending price signals and saying, well, if we can use the demand at night so we can charge our electric vehicles at night, we can charge our batteries at night. We're using then wind energy to start using those resources and shifting the demand to the nighttime. And so suddenly demand itself becomes then a valuable resource that you can move in the grid and makes the whole thing more productive. So, so from that perspective, the things that AEMO's thinking about as we move into this new environment are many of the things that have been identified in the blueprint that are necessary to do. One is we need to get better price signals out to the value of being able to shift and respond to load. Secondly, we have to realize that the resources we're talking about are moving much more quickly than traditional resources. And so with the opportunity to actually make the grid actually much more responsive to changes. So we have to have faster price signals. Third is, is that we do need to think about forward markets. Because if I were to go to a large industrial customer and say, you know, tomorrow's going to be hot. We're going to really need you to shift your, in, uh, your, your shifts so that you're maybe moving people two shifts at night rather than one during the day. I can't tell them that real time. So if we could start thinking about day-ahead markets and giving people the opportunity to plan and distribution utilities, the opportunity to really think about how they can shift load, we drive productivity. So it's thinking about all the things about we can't continue to operate the markets as we've done in the last 20 years, which they've operated very well when we have a very different taxonomy of the system. We have different resources. So, so really re stepping back and saying we've got to think about the markets in a way that really is willing to step to look at it from a customer perspective and not based on what we've done historically in incrementing, but actually really being willing to take a broader comprehensive review is very critical. So I think the points identified in the blueprint of things we need to look at are things that AMO is certainly going to be working with uh, as with the market bodies as well as our market participants. The second issue I think is important is both planning and the transition. So um, I do like this statement that hope is not a plan, and I think it's really true. And we can't hope anymore for a good outcome. So really thinking through what these systems are going to need, setting the price signals, providing some level of predictability is important. And I think we can't forget the fact that we're asking people to make multi-million dollar investments. And so in order to do that, they have to have some level of certainty of how they're going to recover that, where the needs are. 
but it's also about data and information that can get out there when we have the ability to really think holistically. The other piece that I would suggest around planning and us thinking about the network, and again, thinking about what the customer thinks about, which is the total bill, is how the system is, is needs to and wants to change. So one of the things that we found with national markets is that you have um, geographic diversity. The wind's not blowing in Victoria, it may be blowing in Tasmania. And rather than just not having that energy available or building another generation plant in Victoria, maybe we need to look at the networks between Tasmania and Victoria. If we build a solar plant in, uh, the, uh, in western Victoria, we may be able to build a network that gets better advantage of that plant if we think about where it could be located so it could serve multiple regions. So thinking about the system holistically, not just regionally, is, is also going to be very critical. And that can only happen if you have some form of a national plan and you have the direction from where you're going. So I, I, I would agree with Alan. I don't think this is an Australia issue. One of the things I was thinking about today, when I would say this week is Energy Australia Energy Week, is it's also New York Energy Week. And I'm, I sort of made a joke, but nobody got it. Energy's become more so important, we need a week now, not a day. But the, the point is, is that if I were in, in New York, I'd be making the same comments. We need, the, the issue anymore around this industry is not about technology, it's about energy, market design, and regulation. Technology is moving very quickly. What we need to do is make sure the regulatory format and the market formats is accommodating these changes so that we can drive efficiency. So, you know, re regardless of where we are, that's the, that, that is the challenge. When the, the last thing I would say is this. Um, the issue we had in New York is we tried to rechange how we run the markets and how we redid regulation in order to attract investment in wind and solar. So we are trying to get ahead of the game and make sure that what, we, what happened was happened efficiently. In Australia, we're seeing massive increases in the amount of requests on solar and wind. So the, the investments are coming in. Now it's really incumbent upon us to think about how we design the markets and how we move regulation so that these investments can be done in such a way to provide maximum optimum value to consumers. I think that if we get this right and we actually think about these vertical markets where we're talking about using things from the um, from the meter all the way up to the supply and optimizing it. Not only will we help consumers here, and I am optimistic that we can get back to those same type of price regimes if we drive efficiency, but I also think we'll be actually creating an energy economy that can lead the rest in the world in, in how to get this done right. So uh, we're looking forward to it, and thank you for the opportunity. Audrey, and just springboarding off that point about Energy Week, uh, I think one of the points that uh, Dr Finkel made yesterday at the press club was one, the big measure of success for your report is that we're not talking about power in three years' time. I hope that that happens. Now, our next and final speaker before we start our panel discussion is Tony Wood. Tony is considered the go-to guru in our office for analysis and advice on Australia's energy systems. He's often a voice, a sensible voice of reason, and he's not afraid to call out crazy ideas when he sees them. And also, he's also 
full of praise when he sees good ideas too. He's the Energy Program Director at the Grattan Institute. And before that, he worked at Orient Origin Edge Energy, I think, for 11 years. So he knows this policy area very well. And he was also on, worked on the Garno, the first Garno report. So please welcome Tony Wood. Thank you, Sabra, and good evening. The, um, the slide that Alan showed with the ship um, worried me a little because it was a square-masted sailing ship, and, um, and it showed the sea being perfectly smooth. My suspicion is that the ship doesn't actually look like that and the sea is not smooth at all. Um, you've heard from the, the, the engineer and the operator. You're going to hear a little bit from the policy and the political side of this in the next five or ten minutes. The... Um, the, uh, whether Alan has designed the fit-for-purpose sailing ship we need for the next 20 years, um, since we seem to have been somewhat adrift in rough seas in the last four or five years, remains to be seen. Um, and to give you an example how this plays out, um, I met Audrey in Adelaide three days after she'd arrived in this country, and the uh, chair of the AMO had presented the final report on the blackout in South Australia, and did an analysis causes and consequences of that blackout. In the media the next day, half the national press said, see, renewables caused the problem. And the other half said, see, renewables didn't cause the problem. Now, there's a perfect example of some of the challenges that navigating the ship through the political uh, waters is going to be challenging. I just wanted to touch a little bit about what I think are some of the interesting aspects of the Finkel Review in terms of the policy and the political framework that we had ahead of us. Um, the first thing I'd say is that the climate change side of this is both the most important, at the same time almost the least important of what Alan's been talking about. Because I say the least important because we have been trying desperately in this country to try everything else except first best policy. And eventually we'll work out that didn't work and we'll go back to first best policy. But in the meantime, we have a journey to go through and we'll try a few more yet before we get there. On the other side of it, um, you know, you can't, in many ways, the, the 49 that Alan talked about will almost get us where we've been before if we don't start to move forward on credible climate policy. There's the challenge. In terms of some of the specific things, there is, a, I think, an interesting shift in the balance between the use of markets and the use of planning. Both Alan and Audrey have referred to the need for planning. The question will be, and you'll see some of the debate already, is do we want to have a centrally planned, regulated, government-owned, renationalised energy system, or do we want to move away a little from dependence on markets and towards something that actually has an element of planning about? Where should that sit? What should be the role of the planner? And how much responsibility and authority do you want them to have? They will be questions that will play out in the next little while. Has the thing we'll find out, well, has this report actually addressed some of the fundamental questions that Alan was asked about security and reliability? He's put forward some proposals. I know from my own conversation with Alan, in many, you know, some of the proposals aren't necessarily completely all that he was um, uh, suggested he should do. Other parts of the world have tried different approaches, but nobody, I would suggest, in the world has got this right. Nobody. And so this is a journey we are all undertaking. I think the proposal for the Energy Security Board would be one of the more challenging ones when it comes to the states getting on board through the Coag Energy Council that Alan referred to. It was relatively, I suspect, relatively easy to get through the coalition party room, uh, the 49 
recommendations. When you think about what Alan has said about the way in which state governments are dealing with these issues and the way they should actually sign up to a new Australian energy market agreement and agree to play together and not simply say they're going to play together and go off and behave um, uh, parochially, then we'll see what happens out of that. Because my suspicion is, as we saw from it, which at least one state government, before the Finkel review was announced, said they would have a task force to implement the recommendations of the Finkel review that they agreed with. And you just think about what that is code for. And not very well disguised code, I would say. On, in, terms of, in terms of gas, I mean, it is one of, the, one of the inherent challenges at the moment is that the gas market is particularly nasty. And one of the reasons I think the Prime Minister made the announcement he did earlier this week is because not only is gas, are gas prices affecting people who use gas for heating and for cooking and so forth, industrial processing, but gas is now affecting electricity prices in a very dramatic way. You could argue that it's not the fault of gas. The reason it's allowed to do that is because of other things that have flowed from that. But it's certainly the case that gas has become very challenging. And again, Dr. Finkel has recommended a nationally consistent approach to the development of gas resources. That is not something that the states currently agree with, although they probably would say we should all do it the same way, we should all do it our way. And that's again a challenge for cooperative or uncooperative federalism. Now when you look at the the good things about the, 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 the climate part of it, because Alan didn't go into detail here, I think we have seen before us, in what Alan proposed, a serious challenge to adopt a climate policy that has some real chance of getting to where we need to be. He's also recommended, and, and the federal government has supported this recommendation, that by 2020 we'll have a whole-of-economy emissions reduction strategy in 2050. Not many people have talked about that very much, but that if they stick to it, it's a very significant change from where we've been. This is not what I would call the first best policy, because we tried all of those, and they didn't get very far, so we have what I think is a bit, what will be a very effective and relatively efficient policy. Alan put up the slides to talk about price. On cost, they're not the same. But the difference is within the order of magnitude of the accuracy of the assumptions and models. So it doesn't matter much. That's why I said before, look, there are at least half a dozen climate change policies that will get us there. Just pick one. Just pick one. And now we can do the other stuff. Um, one of my daughters is actually here tonight as a singer. And um, one of her favourite musicals is Les Miserables. And in that um, musical, there's a thing about dreaming a dream. And at the moment, I think hope is high. The question is, as we're looking into what's happened in the last week or so, the tigers have come out. And we'll see, Alan, whether they tear your hopes apart and whether your dream turns to shame. <laughs> we will see. Earlier this week, um, I wrote a piece for the Weekend Financial Review that said, I reminded people about um, Gail Braith, who said that economic modelling was invented only to make astrology look respectable. <laughs> At the same time, we've had a debate in some elements of the political world which says we do want to go back to the 20th century. That's when things were much more certain. That's when prices were low. That's when we knew exactly what we were doing. If the lights went out, we didn't care very much. We could use candles. Unfortunately, my children and grandchildren's um, laptops 
and iPads don't work very well with candles. And so we don't, we cannot go backwards. And what I suggest to you, as, as we look at this, and we deal with higher electricity prices, they will not go back where they were. They will start to ameliorate, and as we see the technology changes unfold, they will be as low as they possibly can be. One thing we can be certain of in this world of uncertainty is that neither astrology nor nostalgia is a good base for policy making. Thank you. All right, Dr. Finkel, I'm going to start with you. Now, your report was declared in one of the papers yesterday on life support. And as you point out, the government has accepted 49 of the 50. And I think you said um, uh, yesterday that, you know, and again today, that's a pretty good result. But still, can the blueprint operate without that 50th recommendation? Um, so the question was, can the blueprint yeah, for the individual 49 uh, recommendations be useful in the absence of the big one that has not yet been uh, endorsed by the Commonwealth, which is the orderly transition? And my answer was that absolutely we would prefer to see the full package accepted. Um, that is, the, in our opinion, the best way forward. It goes beyond nostalgia, beyond astrology. It's got a bit of hope involved but it's also got a lot of logic and optimization in that whole package. Um, if the orderly transition is not accepted, uh, we'll still have a much better system, I think, going forward from those 49 recommendations being accepted, assuming they get through COAG. But we'll be left in a world of pain in terms of investor uncertainty, and that can't be trivialised. But I don't accept the characterization that you uh, referred to from the press that it's on life support. It's really a positive situation. 11 days after we presented to COAG, the Commonwealth Government, in a very difficult political circumstance, has been able to say that it will endorse 49 of the 50 recommendations. And the last one, which is the clean energy target and the emissions reduction trajectory, is actively being considered by them. So I just can't accept the characterization wasn't my characterisation, <laughs> but it was a headline in one of the papers yesterday. Um, and I think this is a, a good question for you, Tony. You've seen the politics this week in Canberra. Some politicians, notably within the coalition, want coal to definitely have a future, and coal does have a future under the clean energy target. It, had a, it has a better future than the businesses now scenario. But does it make sense for the federal government to be getting involved with this talk now of uh, possibly funding uh, coal-fired plants, the so-called high-efficiency, low-emissions plants, through this competitive tender, reverse auction, whatever you want to call it, uh, given that no private companies or listed companies have expressed any desire to build that kind of thing in Australia? Well, I guess the um, question that arises for me is, firstly, would... Given the, given the appropriate financial incentives, would anyone build a coal-fired power station in Australia? And the answer is yes. Um, if you were given a contractual arrangement similar to what we currently use for large-scale um, renewable energy projects, someone would fund it. Now, I would not suggest that would be appropriate for the government. I am much, far more concerned about renationalisation of this whole system. I think that ends us up in a very nasty place. Now, I think that the... You know, what, Alan's what um, Alan has de designed is a blueprint. And 
there are various design elements of why that can be adjusted. So you can, for example, set the threshold below which technologies can generate credits um, at whatever level you like. If you set it very low, call it zero, you create another version of today's renewable energy target. If you sell it quite high, it looks much more like an emissions intensity scheme which the government rejected. So you can create what I would argue is the right economic circumstances to achieve your environmental objective at the same time if it turns out that those people who are keen on low emission coal technologies can demonstrate that in such a world that's economically efficient, I've got no problem with it. I suspect that will be a big challenge. Audrey, you've got a huge task ahead. I mean, the Prime Minister said at a press conference uh, on Tuesday that it's now AEMO's role to make sure, and I think I'm quoting word for word here, there's not a gap in baseload power next summer. No pressure. <laughs> I think he gave me one more year. <laughs> how, how are you going to go about achieve, achieving that? That seems to me in the short term a, a massive task. Well, I mean, I, we, ha we have no choice. So, so, you know, we have to be looking out and seeing what we're going to need for energy over the next five years across the NEM. And if, in fact, there's insufficient capability to meet our system, we have to have a way to procure it and get these new, new resources in. The, the fact of the matter is, you know, if we talk about existential threats, I, I believe very, uh, very strongly that the greatest threat we have to markets and innovation is if we can't deliver power securely. Because, you know, I, I've said this before, and while I believe very, uh, that markets drive in and, and competition drives innovation and innovation drives better results, the fact of the matter is electricity is an essential service. And one thing that good government has to do is it has to, it has to deliver the essential services well. So it doesn't surprise me at all when a government is insecure about their ability to provide essential services that they're going to look for ways to intervene because that's what government should do, right? And so our job really is to work with the markets and say, what can we do in the near term? to make certain that I can answer this question, can we keep the lights on all the time under reasonable circumstances? And I think everyone understands if it's a major storm, if something happens, we may need to load shed. But in general, I think the expectation in our society and all societies in the, sort of the, in, in the developed world is that the lights work, the heat stays on, the schools are good, the streets are safe, the water out of your tap is clean. And when none of those things stop to happening, then that's when re-elections occur, whether it's in the United States or Australia or France or England. And that's, that's really what is, this is all about. Reliability, but it's also about price. We well, saw the extraordinary announcement that the government will intervene in the gas market. It, it, it foreshadowed that, but it actually said this week it was going to do that, and hopefully the prices, you know, they will come down. We'll never see the cheap prices that you mentioned, Dr. Finkel, but they're hoping to put downward pressure on prices. And, you know, and, and as I, and the way, one way to manage prices is to, again, is if we, if we look towards productivity, if we take, if we optimize these resources end and end, if we do that and we drive the inefficiencies out of the system and make best use of renewables, which frankly can be used in an efficient way, we can drive down price, and I, you know, I, I sort of look at it as uh, this way: if if we 
if we deliver value to consumers and consumers are happy, then governments are happy. When governments are happy, they don't intervene. And so our job really in the industry is to make sure that the needs of consumers are being met. Can I just add to that? Um, in a sense, we're in a period of transition. If you think of what we've had as NEM 1.0 mm -hmm. and where we're going as NEM 2.0, we're in that transitional phase, and transition is a difficult time. Um, government is needs to respond to the price pressures, the frustrations of consumers. Uh, my hope is that the interventions that they've been announcing and doing will be transitional. They won't be part of the long term, as Tony was saying. Uh, I don't think any of us are looking for renationalisation of the system. That won't be cost effective in the long term. It won't be efficient in the long term. But one has to have a little bit of sympathy for the situation at the moment. Governments need to react in the way that Audrey was saying. And if you see it as a transition between NEM 1.0 and NEM right. 2.0, you could be a little bit comforted that it's not there for the long term. And, and well, since we'll, we'll do a dialogue here, because one of the things that's, that's identified in the blueprint is the need to have a, a basically a market for resource security so that we could do this as part of the market. I actually see the announcement about asking us to go out and make sure that the system is secure in the, in the short term is very consistent with that view. And certainly the mechanism that we would look to put in is a mechanism that would actually foreshadow the more permanent mechanism. So. You know, in many ways, I know there's a lot of dis, uh, you know, there's 49 recommendations, and I think the blueprint does an, an excellent job of, of capturing the needs of the market. But I think we have to think about it this way: our markets were designed in 1990 in the 1990s when we had large combustion generation was a dominant force with hydro, and that and what we're looking at is rationalizing actually some level of overinvestment in supply. Now we have a whole different resource mix, and really while the blueprint identifies some very good things that we need in the market, none of it is different than is actually what exists today in the European and U.S. market. So while I think it's very good, there's nothing in it that's radical, and so I would suggest I would be shocked actually if the governments don't look at this, and I certainly, you know, I know that, uh, you know, in discussions with my the sister agencies of AR and AMC, we're all looking at it and saying, yeah, it's, not, it's nothing out of, out of bounds here. Why wouldn't we do it? Why wouldn't you want to make the system more secure? Why wouldn't you want an understanding of how it's going to work? Why wouldn't you want to integrate in the cheapest resources? So it, it, to me, it's, it's just very logical. Well, I'm interested, I mean, in your short time here, you've, you've had a small sample of just how fractious the politics has been here. Wait, wait, I come from Trump world. <laughs> I was going to say, as, as an outsider, is, is it as divisive in the United States as it has been here, climate policy? Well, well, the fact that, that we're shooting congressmen in baseball games, it's pretty divisive in the United States right now. No, I, I, I think obviously in the United States we're debating the issue of climate change and it's, it, it's not, uh, actually it's not terribly different. I mean, I, I came from New York, New York, California, Massachusetts. I mean, they all actually signed on to the Paris Agreement and all these governors have said, well, we don't really care what, what Donald Trump's doing, we're moving forward. And they represent 60% of the U.S. economy. So, I, you know, I, as far as I'm looking at it, it's, it's the same nature of the same, uh, the same debate uh, in, that, in that context. I think the, the issue for, for, for those of us who, you know, really see the, the opportunities here is that the cost of wind and solar are coming down. And, you know, when I, when I hear uh, Andrew Vesey from AGL, I don't think he's saying he's not going to invest in coal 
because it's an environmental reasons. He's saying because it's economic, uneconomic. And I've heard that from the CEOs of other organizations. So the, the question for us is not whether or not we want to embrace you know, one technology on the other. The issue is technology's changed. Costs are coming down. Storage is becoming more and more a grid parity. How do we design the markets and regulation to take advantage of that for, so, so that we're moving to the future? And um, I, so it, it's, it's a little, I, while I think it's certainly helpful, if we could have agreement on the emissions strategy going forward, I think economics are driving a lot of these issues anyway. But just on that cost point, I don't know, you probably might have been too busy today to notice that Grant King, the head of the Business Council of Australia, wrote uh, an opinion piece which was published in uh, Fairfax and Fin Review today. And he said if the government were to finance or underwrite a new coal-fired power plant, it would further frighten private investors and force taxpayers to potentially bankroll a second, third or even a fourth power station. What did you make of that? Um, I have to confess, as you pointed out, that I did work with Grant King for many years in, in Origin Energy, um, and um, therefore I, you know, I understand a little bit of what he's saying, I think, from that experience. But I think the, the trick here is that people sort of have this view, I think, that markets are some sort of sacred animal that behaves in certain ways and can be, can be, do, can be left alone to do its own thing and, and they're very robust. They're not markets, are very sensitive beasts. And you don't want to scare them too much. If you muck around with them too much, they fall over and they break and they get strained. So we've got to, you know, but they also behave usually predictably. They do exactly what you ask them to do. Now, the trick here is that, you know, we've got a situation where there are elements of the market that just don't do what you want. Now, I think I was ordinary, I heard say not very long ago, that the market isn't the objective. The market is to look at what consumers want in the long term. The, mar the market may be one way of getting there more efficiently and effectively than government ownership. And I suggest before we give up on the market, we should be very think very carefully about whether we want to go back to where we were in the 1990s when, for good reasons, we thought it was a better alternative. So I think that's what Grant was highlighting. That, look, if you do this in a predictable way so that the market people, market operators, investors know the sort of things that Audrey's looking at, that Emo's looking at, and the way Alan's designed this, then you know exactly how it's going to It's like the Reserve Bank of the energy system. Right? The, everyone knows the Reserve Bank can do all sorts of stuff, but they more or less know how it works. That's what I think he's talking about here, that the, the what you need is um, a way in which the AMO responds in a way that's predictable, but is flexible in the future. So it's predictable, it's flexible predictability is what we're looking for. And that's what I think uh, Alan's recommending for the AEMO. And if they get that right, then I think you can get a situation where you get the right balance between planning and you know, government absolutely appropriate concern, but at the same time you get a degree of, uh, uh, degree of certainty that you need for investment. Uh, Dr Finkel, we had a question come in from the President of the Engineers Australia, uh, Chris Stoltz, and being an engineer, I thought uh, you might uh, take this question. It says, until we have a clear energy policy to guide investment, is it too late to reinstate some of the gas and coal-fired generation capacity? To reinstate the existing capacity? Well, uh, Audrey and AEMO have been working with the uh, existing gas generators that in some cases have been taken out of the system and so-called mothballed to get them to reinstate what they've got so that everything is ready for the coming summer. summer. We absolutely yeah. endorse that. 
I'm not sure that there are any coal generators that you can reinstate. Um, the owners of Hazelwood made sure that they ripped the equipment to pieces really quickly on the final day that they operated. So I'm not sure that that is possible. Um, just going back to the conversation about coal, um, Tony, you were talking about two types of people in the world. I've decided there are two types of people in the world, those who love coal and those who hate coal. And I'm the only one sitting on the fence um, because our focus, as I said, is on outcomes. And as long as you're getting the cheapest um, approach to reliable, secure energy delivery and you're meeting the emissions reduction target, you shouldn't worry. Now, I don't know what the consequences would be if a new coal-generating plant, a large one, let's say, you know, to replace Hazelwood, one and a half or two gigawatt plant got built. But some of the people I've been speaking to today suggest that actually it might be a surprise. It might displace existing coal rather than prevent the entry of new renewables, because that's been said many times tonight. Those new renewables um, are a really economic way of bringing new generation to the market, and they can be firmed up with batteries and other means so that they can provide the constant supply that we need. So until people do some modelling and deeply think about it, we don't know what the unexpected side effects would be of a new coal generator. And last thing, I'd point out that the Prime Minister, as I saw it on um, TV in the press conference, was talking about a reverse auction to bring in new capacity. But he was asked by one of the reporters, does it have to be coal? He said, no, we would put out a tender for reverse auction for somebody to bring in base load capacity at large scale. It could be gas. A lot of people are saying to me, it could be a combination of solar, wind and backup. The market is the right place to work that out. It could be. Uh, this is an interesting point, um, Tony Wood, to bring you in on. That happened, that press conference happened uh, a day after the Minerals Council gave government MPs a briefing. Uh, pretty interesting that they were allowed to give him a briefing. What did you think about that? Um, the mineral, uh, some of you may, may not have, may, may have um, looked at The Guardian today, and I've been quoted as saying that the Minerals Council may very well have intended to blow up the entire Finkel review in this um, proposal, um, because as a strategy, um, uh, bl uh, blaming with faint praise is a really good, clever way to do it, and the Minerals Council has done this before. It could easily be equally that the Minerals Council said, look, we're going to try and make a constructive input to the Finkel Review, and this is our proposal as an alternative way of addressing what we think is a major emerging problem in relation to a shortage of baseload generation. Um, we'll see what people think about what the final response to that might be, but... Uh, you know, I, I think that the, the two, the, the, the joining of the two was at the very least an unfortunate piece of time. I, you know, as I understand our, our well, the instruction and, and the concern I know that we're going to be addressing is this. The, even the expectation is, is that it'll take some time for us to put the reforms in place that are identified in the Finkel report. In the interim, we need to make sure that, that the lights stay on. And so if that requires us to go out and get additional resources, the um, Commonwealth was, I think, being very pragmatic and prudent in saying we need to have AUMO in a position that it can identify where there might be scarcity and have a mechanism to, to procure uh, and make sure that, 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 that the system becomes secure. So it is a transition element. It isn't uh, 
technology, it is technology neutral, the expectation, and size neutral. We, we, we weren't told you have to go out and do 2,000 megawatts. We weren't told it has to be in one place. We were told, go out, tell us what the system needs, and then a design and auction so that the best resources, and they can compete head-to-head, -head, wins. And, I, and to me, that's a very rational and very market-friendly approach to moving forward. Okay, time for some questions from the audience. We've got uh, two roving mics, or maybe one roving mic, given our audio issues here. And please, if you could uh, just, yeah, tell us your name and uh, whether you're an individual or whether you're, you're from somewhere. From somewhere, anywhere. Somewhere. No, I'm really just nowhere. Uh, Simon Hunsakort uh, here. I've got a question about the generator reliability obligations um, for Dr Finkel. Uh, I, didn't, um, I didn't understand it. Is it proposed that the reliability obligation extends to uh, to non-renewable generators as well, joining the NIM? And what was the decision in not using the market to directly find the lowest cost solutions, um, but instead to staple a new uh, requirement onto new generators? So the recommendation, as most of our recommendations, leaves details to be worked out by AEMC, the rulemaker, consulting with AEMO and AER and, and the participants. But yes, it was suggested that all new generation should meet that. Um, if the new generation is gas, it intrinsically meets it. If the new generation was catchment hydro or biomass, it intrinsically meets it. It's really uh, more of a challenge for the variable renewable energy generators, large-scale ones, such as large-scale wind and large-scale solar. Um, the market could have done that already, but it hasn't. So something is, it, it, reliability is key. It, it's not, the market tends to look at the averages rather than the peaks. It was intended to deal with the peaks, so the design of the energy-only market um, has been such that the price signals to investors coming from the really high prices you get when there's a scarcity uh, would say, look, you should build some more gas, etc. And it worked very well in the presence of growing demand. It worked very well in the presence of consistent technology, but it has been failing. It's been it's a scarcity mechanism. And it's Well what other market are you talking about? Well, creating a new market for that would be a very bold experiment that I wouldn't see as coming in under the rubric of optimising the way forward. Um, there, we don't have a growing market. It's steady demand. We're really looking at replacing exits of existing generators, whatever they might be. And one day they'll be exiting wind farms and exiting solar farms. We're talking about maintaining reliability. It's difficult to create a brand new market for a top-up entity, which is this reliability obligation, in a static um, growth situation. That would be a really bold suggestion. All right, we had a question way up the back there. Jane Morton from Grassroots Climate. Of course, we signed up to an emissions reduction target at Paris, but we also signed up to staying well under two degrees and leaving the door open to 1.5, which of course would require very, very rapid emissions reductions to zero and in fact drawdown. Was there any thought given to stress testing the model to look at whether it would fit with a much more rapid 
reduction in emissions. So um, we specifically were asked to look at security, reliability, affordability uh, in the electricity market, cognizant of our existing obligations. We were not asked to do an analysis again, an analysis has already been well done of the climate science. So the country has made a commitment under the Paris Accord. What we, have re what we have recommended is a framework, being a clean energy target, combined with a national agreement to accept a trajectory into the future, and the three-year notice of closure. What we modelled was the, effectively the um, requirement to meet the Paris commitment. If that was accepted and we got going, and if a future government wanted to approach uh, um, or adopt a steeper trajectory, the framework is quite resilient. I would caution any future government to make any changes too quickly. So if the system was accepted and was in place and a government wanted to say, look, five years from now, we're going to steepen the trajectory because we have a concern about uh, cumulative emissions, the system is sufficiently resilient to do that. Yes? I think from memory, you need to be able to answer this question. Um, Garno review suggested any changes in emission trajectory should be five years out. Should it, was it? Why don't we ask Ross? <laughs> the, the actual author is here tonight. Author is here. Um, Ross Garno, hello, welcome. Was it five years? Uh, I regret that uh, nine. No, there you go. No, five, five years is nine years old. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, the issue here is that you know you, you, you what you've got to have, what you want to have, I think, is a system that was that. We, there was enormous uncertainty around how things are going to change, what the technology is going to be. A, you don't want your policy predicated on a specific forecast of that future. It needs to be able to adjust, and that means that periodically you have to adjust it. Now, you can set very broad long-term targets and then have short-term targets which are firmer and gradually adjust those, which was largely what the Garner Review was, tr was trying to design, and there's been other attempts to do the same thing. I think the question also relates to the issue of, well, you know, um, Alan's job was to specifically look at electricity. That's 34% of our emissions. It's not the other 66% of our emissions. And so we are left with a challenge of what we do about that. Alan certainly recommended, and the government said they endorse, a whole of economy target by 2020 to 2050. And that's where that debate will take place. But it will certainly take place, I think, in the second half of this year when the broader climate review has to be undertaken. Okay. Other questions? Yeah, uh, are the concerns for the uh, for keeping the the concerns for keeping the lights on uh, drowning out the concerns of the of the climate scientists? I'm sorry, could you? We couldn't quite hear that question. I think the question was: uh, are, the con are the concerns for keeping the lights on drowning out the concerns of the climate scientists? So I guess I, are the concerns is the concern for keeping the lights on drowning out the concern around climate science. No, I, I really don't think it's an either or proposition. I think that that what we have to recognise is that again, if if we can if we can move forward and think about how we integrate resources better, renewables, and we can think about how we use the demand side better. Uh, the, the issues of security, reliability, price, and the environment can be joined. And I think this idea that you have to be concerned about the environment or you should be concerned about price and there, you can't combine the two is, is really outmoded thinking, and, and we need to move forward from that. 
Can I also add that um, in relation to the climate science, a lot of people come to us and say, oh, electricity has to do the heavy lifting on behalf of the whole economy. But that's not a decision that we were asked to make, and it's not even a decision that I think is necessary, or a, a piece of advice that is necessarily correct. Um, the electricity sector is 34 or 35%, as Tony was saying. Uh, agriculture and land use is 20%. There are ample opportunities through avoiding deforestation to meet at least the next decade's worth of commitments. Um, there are ample opportunities in the transport sector, which is 18% of our emissions, through implementing uh, efficiency regulations for vehicles to reduce the emissions in that sector and through the electrification of the transport sector. And there are ample opportunities in uh, direct combustion, like heating, space heating, uh, which is also another 18% of the emissions through using electricity itself to replace gas for direct heating. And when you use electricity with heat pumps, it's an incredibly efficient way of using your primary energy sources. So I don't buy that for the next decade in any event, electricity necessarily has to do the heavy lifting. Maybe it can, but if we rush the process in the electricity sector, we run the risk of higher prices, lower security and lower reliability. So we need to optimise, we need to find the right balance. The question about security is tricky because um, for those who want to create a scaremongering campaign that renewable energy is going to cause the lights to go out, is what's the fertile ground at the moment? You need to get on top of these issues quickly, which is what I want to put too much weight on Audrey's responsibility here. But can I suggest that if we had a blackout in Melbourne next summer, you can just about forget for at least a while a lot of the stuff to do with climate policy. So there is a there is a hierarchy here. The challenge is to make sure we don't really test it. There's uh, a question up right up front. One question to Audrey and one to Alan. Uh, Audrey, uh, one of the good things about the Finkel report is that it leaves lots of things to AMO, and we've we've all got great confidence in you. Uh, 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 but the, uh, the recommendation put another layer on top of you. Uh, will the Energy Security Board, with you just being, uh, or your chair just being uh, one of five members and then a, uh, a chair and deputy chair, uh, help you to build this new flexible uh, energy system of the future or not? And to, to Alan, a lot of discussion uh, about the cost of electricity and the the coalition party rumours seem to focus on the cost of uh, electricity being the reason not to do anything about re re reducing emissions. Uh, on the particular model that you used, uh, what would be the effect of having a stronger target? I, instead of reducing emissions by 28% to say reduce to 30 or 35%, would that increase, lower, or leave the same the price of wholesale electricity? So, so I'll answer the easy question. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I really, first of all, appreciate what you said. It, it is uh, the CEO and then the chair of AR and the chair of AMC, as three market bodies working at the Energy Security Board. Uh, you know, to me, from the, the perspective of governance, it is very important that we, we get the direction and we can move things quickly. I think the, the, the idea of having a body that has really got the delegated authority to just deliver 
and move with, and with the right kind of support, I think makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, when I, you know, when I, I when, when I think about it, these are really complex matters. And to ask people who are busy politicians working on multiple issues to come across things and make decisions is really a hard task. And, and often you have, uh, very conflicting, you know, priorities and things you have to think about. Providing really, and, and if there's, if the COAG is willing to do that, I think it actually will become a, a real add to, to move things forward. So, you know, we're, um, but in the meantime, I would say that, that AER and AMC and AEMO, uh, and Paula Convoy's in the, in the audience, we're spending a lot of time working together because it, it, from our perspective, uh, many, many of the things that are, that are outlined in the report are sensible things to do. We need to get on with it. And so regardless of whether we have a energy security board or don't have an energy security board, the folks in Australia who live this stuff every day, I can tell you are working on it and we're trying to, to really provide, really uh, to take the blueprint and turn it into a real roadmap so that we can turn it into a, a, a real result. And so we're, we're on it anyway. I think though that having a board and, and, uh, you know, if it makes it and having it work faster and better is just going to be beneficial for everybody. And so, Ross, before I answer your question for me, let me just add to that. Uh, I agree with everything that Audrey said. The way we've recommended that the Energy Security Board come into existence is through delegated authority from COEG Energy Council. And the intention is for it, through that delegation, to make COEG Energy Council itself more efficient and through its ability to bring together with that delegated authority the activities of the three energy market bodies, each of which is a terrific body, um, but that added degree of coordination and the specific responsibility to drive the blueprint forward uh, will make the whole system more efficient. Um, in respect of uh, modelling what a steeper um, trajectory would deliver, you know, at some stage you've got to say, how much do you want to know at the moment? The, it's a framework. I'm confident that as a framework, it can be modelled, and from the modelling, one can get, get a result from the economic policy analysis and then work with entities like the MEI, the Melbourne Energy Institute, to do the security and liability studies and determine whether it can be done. But we've got to look at what the needs are today, and I just feel that we've done the right model. Let me repeat that what we've recommended is an architecture. We've modelled a certain trajectory. Governments can accept that as the parameters that they want to use in the initial adoption of the architecture, or they can be more aggressive or less aggressive. If they're less aggressive, it'll be hard for the whole economy to meet the Paris commitments. If they're more aggressive, um, then they've got to do that security and reliability analysis because there will be consequences. They might not be terrible, they might be manageable, but there are consequences. There are always unexpected side effects. It's like medicine. Unless you test it, you don't know what the results are. Right. We've got another question from this side. Yes. <clears throat> the, uh, the system was going to deliver us... Uh, James Brown from Monash University. The system was going to deliver us lower costs and more efficiency and so on, and yet it doesn't actually report wholesale prices. It reports a bit about retail prices. Is the new system actually going to give us a measurement of real 
costs to the so, end user? James, if you look, there's two, you know, we've, our report is actually consistent. There are three documents, the 212-page review, but an integral part of it is the Jacobs Group economic policy analysis, the policy scenario analysis, and the MEI stability analysis. And um, it, you'll find a lot more information in the Jacobs report, including the wholesale prices. But if you can recall the slide that I put up which showed inputs and outputs for the NIM, that's where wholesale prices exist. They're not the outcome of interest. So if you're using a credible mechanism to drive the trajectory called an EIS, you get a certain impact on the wholesale price, which feeds through to the industrial, small business and residential prices. If you're using the clean energy target, you get a very different impact on the wholesale price because the ultimate price that we pay as consumers, whether we're industrial or, or residential, is the combination of certificates from the scheme and the wholesale price. And when you put them together and it feeds through into the final price, we find through the modelling that the clean energy target provides a slightly lower price going forward than the emissions intensity scheme, and between them, either of them provides a fairly significant lower price than business as usual. But it's important not to confuse inputs and outputs with the outcomes that we're interested in. Excellent. We've got time for one more question. Hi there, it's uh, Ed McManus from PowerShop and Meridian Energy. We're a, a long-standing investor in renewable energy in this country and an ongoing investor. So as a, as a sailor of a ship in stormy seas, I wanted to thank you and the panel and congratulate you for uh, all the tremendous work you've done because I think the blueprint has laid out something that makes our job ever so slightly easier. So truly thank you. And my question is, I think early on in the piece, it might have been around the time of the interim report, uh, you were reported at least of, about making some comments on the relative long-term merits of pumped hydro versus battery storage and other forms of storage. And I wondered whether you or the panel had updated, you updated excuse me, your view on that. So the final question is, do we have an opinion the, on pumped the, hydro versus batteries? Yeah, if I recall correctly, six or so months ago, you made some comments around the relative merits of pumped hydro versus batteries and wondered whether you had updated your view at all. Answer that. I, I, I think that um, there, one of the things that we're going to be learning in the next several years is how batteries, especially uh, large-scale grid batteries, work on our system. Uh, I'm really, as uh, many of you are probably aware, the VIC government has announced a, a large-scale battery project, as so as the SA government. These are the, in two year, in one year, we're going to have two of the largest large-scale battery projects um, operating in Australia, which will give us quite a bit of information. But my experience in, in the States is that batteries are, provide a lot of good value in terms of frequency balancing of the system, that particularly because they, they can go up and they go down very quickly, actually faster than uh, traditional generation. So they make the system operate much more efficient, can be helpful in that way. What our concerns are going to be is, is not just about keeping the system in balance in real time, but also what happens if we have a major storm and we have uh, a large period of time where there are cloudy days and the wind's not blowing. And in that context, uh, chemical batteries may not perform as well as pump storage, which you can run over a long period of time. I, you know, I believe uh, that what we have to think about is, is that the grid itself is a system of systems. 
And what we shouldn't do is say, well, if we just need one type of storage, not another type of storage, what you need to think about is, is how to make the, the system itself optimize it with all the various resources that are going to have different characteristics, which in combination drive value. Point about your question is that we have had experience in this country of designing policies based upon the accuracy of the forecast. The only issue is how wrong will the forecast be? And the answer is by a lot. So we've got it wrong really badly before with you know, the carbon price tax that Labor introduced was based upon a forecast within days. It turned out to be grossly wrong and it left it open to attack. Renewable energy target was based upon forecasts. We saw what happened to that. So the key here is to be very confident. Alan described that. There are technologies that are coming down cost very rapidly. The main point about policies, and Alan's designed something to do this, is it should be indifferent. It should facilitate the most efficient deployment of those technologies, whether they be for short-term balancing or the longer term, but they should be indifferent to what happens with those policies and then let people like your organisation to get on and find the lowest cost way of doing it. And so can I just say that when I talk about solar or wind or batteries or pumped hydro, I'm just using them as examples because none of our recommendations are technology specific, but they're need specific. And I agree with what's been said. Um, there are two things you need. You need storage, but you also need the essential security services, frequency control, for example. Um, pumped hydro can provide that. Batteries can provide that. Let the best man win if I could just use the gender-specific traditional term. <laughs> we need diversity. We need, to the extent that they can do it cost-effectively, batteries, pumped hydro. We also need diversity of sources. So just the combination of wind and solar is much better than having only a wind generation capability with renewables or only a solar uh, capability because you smooth out the generation capability. And don't forget demand management. Um, if your need is to deal with the peaks, being able to switch off large loads uh, on demand is important. And if your need is to deal with frequency control, being able to switch off large load in milliseconds is important. There are so many different technologies that can be brought to bear to solve our, our needs or to meet our needs. And our review talks about them all and recommends means that will allow them to uh, enter the market most effectively. But there is no existing prejudice that I have or anybody in the panel has for one technology over another. All right, we could go on all night, but sadly we're not going to. But uh, thank you very much for everyone coming out tonight to talk about this. Thank you to our participants. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.